what better way to end it than to have a Q&A session with our elders. But I'll go ahead and actually read a, a passage of scripture for us before we get started, just to set the tone. So would you turn with me to James chapter 2, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. I'll go ahead and read that for us. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Pastor Mark wanted to recommend that passage, you know, just before we get started with this Q&A. Um, you know, we ultimately are looking to the Lord. I think a lot of the questions that were submitted were very relevant ones right, for each of our lives. And um, the elders will do the best that they can as, you know, as God enables them. But ultimately, you know, we need to ask God for, for help in these very real, real questions that we have. So um, I'll just go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for this time, uh, for this ministry, allowing us to uh, dive deep in the Word uh, each and every week. And uh, Lord, for this Q&A session, we pray uh, for your wisdom. Lord, would you speak clearly through the elders um, with these different questions that have come uh, to the table? And uh, Lord, would you allow them to just reflect your Word accurately and um, with truth and love? And uh, Lord, we just pray for each of our hearts that as uh, we dive into these different questions and answers, uh, that you would be working in our hearts, that we would become more like you. And so we uh, ask that you would help us to depend on you and on your word uh, for uh, for this time. So Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So we are going with the policy of first come, first serve, based on who asked questions or submitted questions on the form. So we'll just go ahead and uh, go through this. And, uh, you know, just so you guys are aware, we've, we've pre-assigned the questions for Pastor Mark and Ted to take on. Uh, but of course, you know, Pastor Mark and Ted, as you know, you're allowed to just add on or supplement to uh, any of the questions. So we'll go ahead and get started here. Sorry, I need... Getting my bearings here for a sec. Okay. So the first question is, how should Christians evaluate political candidates? I think that's for Pastor Mark to take. Yeah, this question came up a few times, actually. So, um, and I'd love to let Kevin Al deal with it since he's not with us today. And any definitive or hard questions, we'll let Kevin and uh, Amelia take care of those things. But in their absence, we don't lower our standards, okay? We don't lower our standards of evaluation because people are unbelievers. The Lord, when we look at the gospel, the beauty of the gospel and what we celebrate at Christmas is God doesn't lower his standards. He doesn't say you have to be less righteous because you're an unbeliever or you're a politician or you have to be less righteous because you're a new believer or you're less spiritually mature. You don't get a pass. Christ comes down and he pays the price and he dies on the cross and he gives us the righteousness that we need. And he brings us, and that's what we were learning last Sunday, what he does in our life and our sanctification is he puts our lives back together the way our lives were supposed to be before sin came and messed everything up and tossed everything out. And so I would just, we tend to have two separate standards, and we really get into a lot of problems with that. And if you look at the history of Christendom, and you also look at American politics, the propensity is, okay, here's one standard for the church, and here's another standard 
for our politicians, and here's another standard for our coworkers, and you know we have each of these different compartmentalized areas where we're running with these different standards. And that's not Christ's intent. When you look from Genesis to Revelation, everything is going to be brought into unity in Christ. That's Ephesians, right? And that the one who holds everything together is Christ. The one who has all authority in heaven and earth is Christ. And the standard is his word. And I think that's incredibly helpful as we come to deal with politicians and people who are voting for it, because it comes down to that question, well, who am I going to vote for? None of these folks are believers. They all have different agendas. Okay, What do I do? How do I, it's a, it's a voting of a lesser of evils. What am I supposed to do to practice my rights? And what impact is this going to have for my children? Right? What's going to happen if A, B, or C ends up in a place of power? And I think we get lost in the details of trying to evaluate things on a political level and we forget that the power that the Lord has given us is the gospel. And the standards that we look, that we should measure every politician and everybody who's running, should still be the Lord's standard. And so when we go to Scripture and we go to 1 Samuel 16, 7, which is Samuel's anointing of a king, and he comes to the family of Jesse, and you're familiar with this, and he evaluates the different sons, and he sees the sons, and the first sons that he sees are good-looking, strong men with leadership quality. And do you recall, you know, what's stated in First Samuel 16:7? Man looks on the outside, but the Lord looks on what? The heart. Okay, and so if we're children of God, we need to do the same thing. We need to consider the heart. And you need to evaluate the heart of the candidate, of each of these candidates. Well, how do we evaluate the heart? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, by their fruits you will know them. Now, he's talking about teachers in the church, but it's still a a universal principle. What is the fruit of this politician's life? And they've been around long enough that you can see what the track record is. Okay? What is it that they worship, and what is their agenda? Okay? And so what do we do when we have most of them are unbelievers? Well, this is an area where there's been problems in the Christian church because we've hitched our wagon to people who have come and said, I'm going to do this, A, B, C, D, E, and I'm going to support these Christian causes. And we've done it even when the fruit of their lives have been divisiveness, lies, deceit, taking advantage of women, the list goes on and on and on, right? But as long as they're going to push uh, you know, an agenda that is going to be pro-life, and as long as they approach an agenda that is going to be Christian liberties and allow us to worship, that's the one we're going to do. What ends up happening is we end up becoming unequally yoked. We end up partnering light with darkness with very destructive individuals. And in the history of American politics over the last hundred years, you see in a pretty consistent way evangelical Christians inevitably get burned. They make these allegiances. They go down this path. They spend a huge amount of time. What they forget is our calling is the gospel, that what transforms lives is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What's going to save whatever there is to be saved of America is going to come, what Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save people, right? That is really where it comes. So as we evaluate these different politicians, we need to view God's standard. We need to evaluate the hearts. We need to see what the fruits of their lives are. And then when you go to Romans 1, and you look at the wrath of God and how it is unleashed against all unrighteousness, one consideration that you can do as you consider voting is how far is this person down on the depravity list that the Lord spells out? How far are they from the Lord and how much in rebellion are they against the Lord, both on their platforms but also their heart? Because at the end of the day is their heart in rebellion. And there are, when you go to Scripture, varying degrees of rebellion and depravity. 
And those varying degrees of rebellion and depravity are going to bring varying degrees of consequence both in this life and the next life. And if, as we've seen over the last eight years, you hitch your wagon to someone who says, I'm going to support all these agendas, but the fruit of their life is just absolute depravity, and the reflection of the heart is plain to see this is a heart that's in complete rebellion against the Lord and contrary to the gospel, you realize you're going to bear out the consequences of that by being connected with that person. Okay, And all I can tell you is, there's a big church I know, I won't say what its name is, and at one of the prayer meetings afterwards in the prayer prayer um, after church, one of the fellows who I know who was working the prayer room afterwards had a person rush in and say, okay, I need prayer. Because on January 6th, I was in Washington, D.C. What do I do? And you just think, when that person's captured on camera and is prosecuted and all of that, what does that do for the testimony of Christ when people are walking around with crosses and saying, yeah, but this was pro-life, this was all of these different things. All of those things which really, if you look at it, they're not substitutes for the gospel. We do need to stand up and cry out that these things are wrong. We do need to say that abortion in America is wrong. We do need to defend the rights of the unborn. We do need to speak okay, for the right to worship. Those are all things, but those are not substitutes for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we have to evaluate by the standard of the gospel and by the standard of God's word. That's where we have to start with every candidate, realizing at the end of the day, Jesus has come and said, my kingdom is not of this world. At the end of the day, God is sovereign. He is going to choose his candidate. Some will be evil, and God will use what men mean for evil for good. Thanks, Pastor Mark. Anything you want to add, Ted, or... Uh, no, I mean, I think your last point, you know, that we, um, as a church, you know, our kingdom, you know, Christ is our king, and so we represent him, and, you know, as he said, you know, we don't want to blur the lines, and, um, yeah, we want to make it clear that our agenda is really the gospel, and, and not something that masquerades as the gospel, just because it seems Christian, so... All right, thank you. Great way to start off this Q&A session. All right, moving right along, the uh, second question, this will be for Ted. The question is, how did you as a single man consider and ultimately pursue Becky? In hindsight, what would be your counsel to the young men in our church as they consider and pursue marriage? It's a better question than I got, bud. <laughs> you can answer this one, too. Um... Well, what I heard, Ted, about how you pursued Becky. <laughs> well, yeah, you can talk to Becky and, and get her perspective on this, but um, there's some parts we disagree on, but I don't know. Uh, but from my perspective, um, so, I, you know, I'll try to keep it very succinct here. Um, yeah, so I was around 28, um, so last year of med school and... Um, yeah, uh, just to start off, I, I think at 28, I think I was still selfish in my perspective in terms of wanting to not be distracted from, you know, whether it's serving in the church or whether it's, you know, being faithful to finish my medical school training. Um, and I sort of use that as an excuse to sort of be like, well, I'm not really that open to relationships right now, uh, which, you know, again, in hindsight, you know, I would say is, is wrong and not honoring to Christ. Um, and, you know, I would say is not a wise way to think about things. Um, and even though it sounds like good intentions, well, I want to focus on Christ and serve in the church, you know, oftentimes that... Um, you're sort of setting the terms and parameters and not letting really Christ lead. Um, you know, I share this just because I, I know in Silicon Valley there's that temptation as, as men to just focus on our careers or focus on this and say, well, 
And so let me let me focus on whatever, getting a career that can sustain a whole family. No, not that that's a wrong thing. Or let me save enough so I can purchase a home before I pursue. You know, you're thinking your way that this is how it's going to be, and you know what's the right way. But really, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's really you know walking with Christ, and and He's the one that opens doors, and He's the one that you know brings along that. Um, yeah, that, that that he's called you to pursue, and, and not just be selfish in your your singleness. Um, but with that being said, you know, again, short story. Um, I think it was a, a one of my one of my good friends' wedding that um, Pastor John. Some of you guys know him. Um, approached me and asked me, you know, so you're still single? A lot of your guy friends they've sort of gotten hitched and gone. So what's what's up with you and um, just, you know, said, hey, yeah, I don't know, you know, just sort of figuring things out, you know. Um, but he offered to sit down, talk to me specifically about, you know, that dating and things like that. Um, you know, just again, set the context. I was serving on the singles ministry um, staff at that time. And Pastor John was my shepherd, so, you know, when I met with him, I really came in with the intention of wanting to let him shepherd my heart and and, and guide me. And so, you know, obviously he's like, is there any person that you're interested in? And he's like, well, not one person in particular. You know, I'm not totally sure. And um, I think he also asked, you know, um, what are you looking for? And, and um, yeah, in the end, I, you know, I, I did. And, Asked him and said, "Hey, you know, I, I know you're you're my shepherd. You know my heart. Uh, you know, so oftentimes you see things in my life that I don't necessarily see, and um, and I trust you too. You know, and and so are there any gals at the church that you or Ange might know that you might recommend? Um, and I I said this like genuinely wanting to hear what he." had to share and, and, and consider it, um, and, and not just out of curiosity. Uh, he said, you know, Ted, are you, are you sure? Because people don't usually ask me that question. And I'm like, yeah, I just, and I, 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 say, I share this and say, this is the way it happened for me. It's very unconventional. It doesn't mean it's the right way to do things, but, um, but uh, I'll, I'll get to the main point here. Um, so, you know, a few weeks later, um, Pastor John approaches me again and says, hey, you know, remember that last conversation? And I got a ch- chance to talk to Ange. And, um, yeah, we sat down and said, you know, um, you know, based on some of the things you shared, you know, you wanted to look for someone who's teachable and, and you know, different characteristics and preferences. He didn't ask for preferences. Um, uh, he mentioned Becky's name and said, you know, this is who and recommended. Um, this is where part of the story is differing from what Becky might share, which is that Ange mentioned a few names, and all I heard was Becky's name, and the rest is history. But anyways, I believe I was right that only Becky's name was mentioned at that time, at least initially. Um, I always remember the other ladies in the picture. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, to be honest, I was a little... Bit surprised, and and part of this because she's six years younger than me, um, and I, I hadn't really thought of her in that way. You know, maybe maybe more as like a younger sister. Uh, I did know her quite well through outreach ministry. Teddy was part of that as well, and and through you know refreshments and new visitors. So we had served pretty much in many of the same ministries and had the same heart for people, uh, but just never really thought of her just because she's younger. Um, even when he asked, are there people you consider, you know, in my mind it was maybe thinking older people, older women, older ladies at our church who've been at our church for a while, thinking, how come people aren't going to them? And so, you know, I'm just thinking, okay. And and so, that's to say, yeah, uh, at the end, you know, John just said, hey, you know, Anne has been meeting with Becky, she's been shepherding her, and, you know, since you asked, somebody you might recommend. Uh, now, I didn't take that and say, you know, go knock on our door the next day and say, oh, by the way, Pastor John recommended you. No, he, he obviously said, hey, you know, 
you could pray about it and see where the Lord does with that. And, you know, he's not like the Pope or anything, right? So, um, yeah, it took a few months for me to just pray through it. Um, and, yeah, just really leading it to the Lord. And, you know, in many ways it made sense. Just I just hadn't thought about it. And, and this is where, you know, I would say, yeah, really coming to your shepherds, the people who whom God has placed over your life, you know, your discipleship group leaders, your pastors, your elders, just because they know you, um, they care for you. Uh, and at the end of the day, we also have to give an account for how we shepherd you. And, and so uh, really seeing that as God's provision and grace in your life to help make some of these difficult, you know, significant decisions, whether it's taking a job, moving, dating, those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, I'm, I, I, in hindsight, I'm really thankful that God uh, provided uh, Pastor John and Ange at that time to, to speak into my life. And yeah, long story short, yeah, it, it made a lot of sense. I prayed and I asked her, and she said yes. And you can ask her the rest, but um, yeah, that's sort of the counsel I would give is you know, not to think that as a guy you have all the wisdom to make these sort of significant decisions in life. You know, God has obviously given you His Word, God has given you prayer, but God has also given you the church. And the leaders and the shepherds of the church to help guide and provide wisdom in those sorts of decisions in life. Thanks, Ted. Does Mike anything you wanted to add to that? It's a time. That, uh, you know, <clears throat> in tandem with what Ted said, um, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, Who the Lord brings together, let no man separate. We go through that with every premarital person who comes through. And of course, that's based on Genesis chapter 2. And I think every Christian marriage is really a miracle of the Lord. You look at how the Lord brings those couples together. I mean, even, you know, as I look out and I see David here, right? And we think of three to five years. David's in the military. He's doing military exercises far away from here and you're just looking on paper and saying how is this feasible and how is this going to work and we come back and we should be humbled at the end I mean even hearing Ted's story to see how the Lord steps in to really against all odds make things right you know and that's a beautiful thing and it's a hopeful thing and it's also an encouraging thing when things don't work out and we can be devastated when it doesn't work out. And we can go, would have, should have, could have, what did I do, this, that, and the other thing. And when we do that, we diminish how much the Lord loves us and how much he's actively involved. It should bring us to a place of humility. So I'm going to speak to the men. There's a shortage of godly, mature men in most churches. That's just kind of the way it is. Young ladies, you know our membership has grown with ladies in the church. And quite frankly, many times it seems like the ladies outstrip the men in maturity spiritually for, for a heart for spiritual things. And men are worried about jobs, careers. There's a ton of other idols that are out there um, that ends up having men being on the slow boat to China when it comes to Christ-likeness and, and being godly and stepping up. And the test of godly leadership is really, are we going to walk by faith or are we going to walk by fear? Are we going to be humble before the Lord and are we going to be open to his plans? And that's what Ted's talking about. It's not your shepherds are going to dictate who you're going to have. It's about being open to maybe something that we don't see because maybe we're spiritually blind or we're not spiritually mature. More often than not, every step of the way, there's an area that we're spiritually blind or we don't have it together where we need the Lord to speak into our lives. And so, young men, I'm just going to say, go read J.C. Ryle's book, Thoughts for Young Men. Humble yourself and be open to godliness and for Christ to speak into your life and realize maybe what you desire, what you think, you don't have it all together because... What frequently happens on my end now is young men come loaded with a defense plan, which is I'm going to be single for the rest of my life, or I want to honor the Lord, or, you know, it's just not there, or I've got A, B, C, D, and E. 
And yeah, maybe those are circumstances, but those really don't address the issue of the heart. And I do wonder how many of those things are just deflections to look respectable for saying, I don't find the women at the church attractive. Because when the special one shows up, suddenly all those excuses sort of dissipate. I know I'm being tough here, but hey, I'm trying to love. And uh, now, because they know who I am, they feel they've got to come armed even more. So then Bible verses come out, well, here, Pastor Mark. And that, honestly, is even more discouraging because usually the Bible verses that are given don't connect with what's going on, right? And it's a bit of a deflection. And I would just say poverty of spirit is what we're learning in the Beatitudes. And I think if you're going to be open to what the Lord wants to do, the great things that He wants to do in your life, being open to Christ, for Him to speak into your life, and to shine the light on someone or something that you might not have considered before, but you will value and esteem because uh, there's Christ-likeness there and Christ is present, is something that should be considered. Thanks, Pastor Mark. Nobody's going to come for me now. For <laughs> dating advice, they're going to come <laughs> to you, Ted, or you, Tim. But. All right, just to be yeah, cognizant of time, I feel like we could have a Q&A session just for you know pursuing marriage. But I'm lobbying uh, for Cornerstone next, next year, just so you know that we've got a session in Cornerstone on dating and whether you should get married or not. So that's coming in the spring, Valentine's right. Day. Something to look forward to, <laughs> Valentine's Day. All right, uh, the next question, um, dude, this one is for Pastor Mark. The question is, we understand that husband and wife are two joined to one flesh. Does this mean that everything we hear, experience, and see, we should share with our spouses? What about in the context of the church? When is it appropriate to share other church members' prayer requests and updates with your spouse? Sure. Have a look at uh, John sixteen twelve. John sixteen twelve. John sixteen twelve. Jesus is talking to the disciples. This is the night before he is going to be crucified, and he says to them, "I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now." When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Our model really as husbands as spouses, as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. And in a similar fashion, wives, you know, you love your husbands, hopefully in the way Christ has framed it, that the church is to love Christ, you know. And that idea of unity, which it's not perfect because we're living in this world, but the direction where the Lord Jesus is taking us is this perfect unity where there's no divisions between us. But that is a sanctification process, as we learned last Sunday, that happens step by step by step. It's not like as soon as you get married, suddenly all the divisions are gone and you, you know, you totally read one another's mind and you know exactly what's going on and you're in perfect sync. That's the sanctification. There's usually a few bumps along the way, and those are sweet bumps which the Lord really uses to knit our hearts together. Jesus' example when he comes to the disciples is his desire is that the disciples would know everything. But he comes in and he understands at that moment before he's going to be crucified that what he has to say and what he desires them to know is more than they can handle. And so in love, he tables it. and says, okay, not now, but the Spirit is going to come and he's going to fill in the details for you. And so I would just say, you know, with regards to our spouses, and you jump over to Ephesians, we have to think Jesus' words were always loving. He spoke the truth in love. They were always clear. They were not confusing. They were always timely. Okay? And they were always holy. 
they edified, they built up. And when you go to Ephesians, when it talks about let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but such as will impart grace to the hearer, okay, when we talk to our spouses, we have to consider what is going to be the impact of what I say on my spouse. Now there's a burden, something's come up, you've heard something, it's distressing, how do you handle that? I think we've got to learn that we've got to go vertical before we go horizontal. Have we come first to the Lord, or has our spouse become a functional savior? Do we come to our spouse to sort of fix all our problems and resolve every concern or to be a, a dumping zone? Or okay, do we go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I've heard something or this has come up and it's super distressing. How do I handle this? And by faith, bring it to the Lord and bring it to the cross because that's where there's really going to be care and resolution. And that's where the Lord is going to, in love, handle it. But at the same time, if it's a burden for you, it should be a burden for your spouse as well. And there is a place to bring that to your spouse. The question is timing and love. And is it going to impart grace and build up and be an encouragement? If you come with a fleshly spirit and you're walking in the old man, that's what Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is about. It's about walking in the newness of life. If we come and we have a spat at the office or a spat at church and we come home and our countenance is dark and we're walking in the flesh and we come to our spouse and say, hey, I just want you to know this happened. <laughs> right? And there's a dump of all the flesh. We have to realize what we put onto our spouse is darkness. Is this going to be an encouragement? Is this going to be build them up? Now our spouses, they love us. And they desire to carry that load, okay? And praise God, many times they're kind to us and they point us to Christ and say, okay, well, how would the Lord want you to handle this? But at the same time, we have to be mindful as we grow and mature, is that really God's design for marriage? Is that where he wants to go with this? Now, you can take the same thing, and I would say in our marriage, and as I'm saying, I'm telling you from our experience, but this is what I've strived to do. There are times that stuff comes up that is just ugly, okay? There are times where it's pretty clear, for example, I'm being attacked or I'm being slandered. The traditional way in the church has been what I got exposed to at a big church, which will remain in name. You don't tell your spouse. You know, you want to protect your spouse so that they don't have to interact with that or if they see that person, they won't think of that person in a negative light. So what ends up happening is, is the spouse ends up sucking it all up and they got this bag going and they're carrying this burden and then it becomes a wedge between the husband and the wife. And I don't think that's honoring to God, and I think it's patronizing to our wives to think that we have to protect them and be a shield in that particular way. And catch me where I'm going here, okay? If it is going to affect our marriage, or if it's going to affect our family, sooner or later my wife is going to have to deal with that, especially if there's an attack that's coming against me or I'm being slandered. And that just goes with the territory. We'll find out about that this Sunday about blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sooner or later, your spouse is going to have to interact with some of that stuff. So the question is, how do we honor the Lord through this, and how do we build up our spouse? So typically, the way I've handled it, or I've tried to handle it, is first I go to the Lord. I pray. I walk through the Psalms. I go to the Lord. And inevitably, I'll look at Julie, too, and I'll say, what has she been through this week? How has it been for her with the kids? How has it been in all these? What burdens is she bearing? And then I try and I hope that I begin to pray for her. Lord, would you help us with this? Right? Would you build her up? Would you help her? And then as best I can, and there's never a perfect moment, okay, I do try and share it with her in a timely way, okay, to say, hey, I just want you to be aware this has come up. And I do that because it's not uncommon that if she doesn't hear it from me, she's going to hear it from somewhere else. And I would rather she hear it from me 
and the two of us get on our knees together, and I'm able to shepherd her, and I know it is going to be hard, and I know it's going to be challenging in her interactions with whoever those people are. But when we walk in the Spirit, I'm able to go through Ephesians 4, I'm able to go through the Sermon on the Mount, and be added to say, honey, we have to trust in Christ, we have to love these people. And then the two of us can pray for those people directly because that's what Christ commands. And in that way, Christ is the remedy and we're able to walk through it. And I know it might take Julie maybe a day or two, but I would rather her wrestle with those things with Christ and with the Word and find out that Christ is her sufficiency rather than me trying to be her functional Savior and put blinders on and pretend everything's good when it's not. So, thanks. Pastor Mark, Ted, anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, okay. All right, the next question actually is also one for Pastor Mark. <laughs> the question is, uh, what do you teach on, well, let's say, what does Lighthouse teach on eschatology? Are your teachings in accordance with premillennialism, amillennialism, dispensationalists, or postmillennialism? This one's pretty simple. We've got a doctrinal statement. We believe in our doctrinal statement. And our doctrinal statement is very similar to Grace Community Churches because that's where we got it from, and all the other lighthouse churches as well. Okay, um, And in that doctrinal statement, there's a section, if you go on our website, what we teach or what we believe, and there's a section on eschatology, and it makes it very clear our position is we are a uh, pre millennial church, and that's taken from uh, Revelation chapter 20, where there's a repeated use of Christ's 1,000-year reign, and that's repeated in that chapter. And so our conviction is that there will be a literal 1,000-year reign, that Christ will come back, and he will reign for that 1,000 years here on earth. And many of the prophecies that were made for Israel will be fulfilled in and around that time as Christ's reign comes for a little literal reign on earth. And uh, so we believe in a literal uh, millennium reign and that Christ will come before that. And so we are pre-millennium. Thank you, Pastor Mark. I just quickly just make a connection to Lagos and um, we teach pre-millennial dispensationalism not because just because grace does it, it's because of our hermeneutics, right? So in Logos, we're studying how to study the Bible. We take a literal historical grammatical approach, and that's where the premillennial position is drawn out of, right? So it's not that we're imposing this view that, oh, you know, the church and, and Israel are separate, and, and therefore we read that into Scripture. It's if we take the plain sense of Scripture, interpret it literally, as the author intended it to be understood, we get to that position uh, of premillennialism. And that's what distinguishes premillennialism from some of the other positions that are taken with regards to eschatology. It's, it's, it's the hermeneutics behind it. So that's why we study the Word. By the way, thank you, Pastor Mark and Ted. Uh, the next question is uh, for Ted. So the question is, 1 Peter 5.7 says that we should be casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When circumstances seem overwhelming and everything seems to be going wrong, how do we cast our anxieties on God? I'm just going to read that passage just so you can be familiar. Um, I'll just start at verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Yeah, so in that context, you, you know, the repeated word there is, is to humble, you know, to be humble before the Lord and to be humble before uh, one another. And it's in that context it says uh, that we are to cast our anxieties on him. And, you know, First Peter, the general context, again, is, is you know, suffering, right? And so, and, and suffering for righteousness sake, not for, you know, suffering because of the sin that, um, uh, as a consequence to our, our personal sins. Um, but there, you know, 
the exhortation to, to humble ourselves, connected to casting all our anxieties on him, uh, really is, is about recognizing, you know, who is sovereign and who is, who we are under the care of, right? It says, because he cares for you, right? And so understanding our place and our position uh, before a mighty God, right? It's in his mighty hands uh, that, uh, um, that we are to humble ourselves underneath, right? And um, when we think about the idea of casting our anxieties on him, really it's really about trusting him, right? Trusting the, the Lord who is sovereign, who is good, who is wise, um, and actively waiting upon him, right? And so this is, you know, in contrast to the other extremes, which would be one of resignation of hopelessness and just feeling like, woe is me, this is miserable, I hate to be in this position, how long? Um, to the other extreme, which is, you know, to try to take matters into our own hands, right, in, in, in times of trouble and difficulty. Um, uh, but instead, we're to really actively uh, wait upon him and, and entrust ourselves to him. And, you know, we don't have, we have no better example of this than, than Christ himself, right? And it says in um, First Peter, so chapter one, I think. Uh, let's see here. Oh, I can't find the passage, but it's in earlier First Peter where you know Christ, you know, even when he was reviled, did not revile, right? First Peter two, yeah. Um, but he entrusted himself, right, to the Father, and. Um, yeah, just this active trusting and waiting upon the Lord to deliver him, right? Not necessarily in the way he expected, uh, but really uh, surrendering um, himself to the Father, right? And we see examples of this throughout Scripture. You know, you think of Job, you know, none of us have suffered, you know, as Christ has. But I mean, even for Job, who was a righteous man, you know, who lost everything, right? Not because he was unrighteous, but because of uh, God's sovereign purposes through that and, and, and Satan's um, attempts, right, to to cause him to stumble. And yet, you know, he says what, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and he understands. And, and, and that, not that he was perfect either, you know, because the Lord at the end had to correct him in his perspective. And uh, at the end of the day, he would say, you know, yeah, I'm I have nothing more to say because you're God and you're sovereign. And yeah, and so, you know, you think of Job, you think of guys like David in the Psalms where he continually cried out to God and, you know, and passing all our anxieties on him doesn't exclude us expressing to God our anguish, right, as, as David did. But at the end of the day, he always landed in the right place, which is understanding his proper place before God, that he's king and that... Um, that God will not fail him, you know, because he's a faithful God, uh, and just to wait upon him. And, and sometimes it feels like we have to wait a long time um, before the Lord delivers. Um, but, the, you know, that's where we just are reminded of the character of God, right? that he's faithful, he's sovereign, and he's good. And in due time, he will exalt those who have humbled themselves, right? It says in First Peter 5. Thanks, Ted. Pastor Mark, anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, thanks for the reminder there, pointing us to the humility that Christ showed. That um, The next question is for Pastor Mark. The question is, how to talk to an, how to talk to an, um, how do you talk to an unbeliever whose loved one is dying? Sure. I actually want to add one thing to Ted. See, I was just thinking that, that idea of passing your anxieties on the Lord if you cast your anxieties before the Lord or on the Lord, you can't hang on to them. So it's an act of faith. It's not, and, and I think sometimes what we all tend to do, and I do too, is we want some sort of control over it, and we're burdened. We want to go to the Lord. We want that instant resolution. And when we don't get on, get the instant answer or our expectations met, we, we, we have a tendency in our flesh to hang on to those anxieties. Right, and we go down the list, and so that idea of casting 
our anxieties and that humility. Ted's absolutely right. It's trust. If we cast our anxieties before the Lord, we need to let go of them. And by faith, we need to let go of them and leave them with the Lord. Um, with regards to, you know, a person who has a loved one, an unbeliever who has a loved one who's passing away, we need to love the person who's come to us, right? And so when that person has come to us, our care for the person is who is the Lord brought before us, this person. And we are called to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I think first off, we need to pray for that person and love that person. How are they hurting? How are they suffering? What is the Lord sovereignly doing in their life through the death of this loved one or the dying of this loved one and that pushed them before us and brought them into our area? And then we think of John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. She's coming for water. She's got no interest in anything spiritual. Jesus is gracious. He interacts with her. And yet at the same time, he draws her attention that there's more going on here than just drawing water from the well. And I think, um, you know, listen, Jesus is the example. I think as someone who comes to us who's not uh, a believer, I think we have to understand with compassion they are grieving. They are suffering. They are dealing with something that is beyond their capacity to address or deal with. How can we love them as Christ has loved us? I think in a tangible way, we can ask them for permission to talk about what they feel comfortable in talking about because those are sensitive times. And simply saying, are, are you open to me talking with you about this and to see whether they're open or closed because they may not be. And we can just leave it open to them if they're not to say, hey, if you want to talk about this further, I would love to have the opportunity to do so and please know I'm praying for you. Right? If they are open, we're in a position where we can go in and let them know, you know what? You know I'm a Christian. Um, where do you stand on these things? And we can ask them, would you be open to hearing, you know, what God's Word and what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has to say about this and the help that He can bring? Now, it's not the help they're looking for, just like the woman at the well but it's a help of love on our end to extend that invitation to open the conversation. And if the Holy Spirit is working, and that's the Holy Spirit's decision, and he's drawing this person, and he's providing an opportunity, and he has this person open where they are open to hearing, and I've had both. You know, I've had people dying, and I said, hey, can I share with you? I'm a Christian, and I'd like to. Would you be open to that? I've had people shut me down and say, you know, I'm angry at God. Absolutely not. Okay, we don't throw our pearls before swine. I know that sounds terrible, but someone who has totally rejected the Lord and they say, I don't want this, we need to honor both the Lord and them and love them and say, okay, I hear you, but just know I'm, I'm going to love you and I'm going to pray for you, and if there's any way I can serve and help you, I want to do that. But if they are open, then you have an opportunity to minister the gospel to them. And one of the first ways you can do so is by offering, would you mind if I prayed with you, for you, and for your loved one who is dying? And with all sincerity and with everything that Christ commands, you have an opportunity to intercede on this person's behalf and the person who's dying and go before the Lord. And I would say we need to love them as Christ loved them, not see them as a mark or a target to sell a product in a moment of vulnerability, but instead to see that Christ is present, a light is shining, and we have the opportunity to love this person, and then we have to trust the Lord to go step by step by step to receive what the Lord provides in ministering and loving and caring for this person. There are going to be times, and I'm not saying it, it, it is all about the gospel, but there are times where you may need to just put an arm around this person or take them for lunch or feed them because you're seeing the bigger picture that this is all the love of Christ. That doesn't mean we push the gospel aside, but it's the timeliness 
And it's the love of Christ that will ultimately prevail. Thanks, Pastor Mark. Had anything you wanted to add there? Okay. Um, the next question is for Ted. And the question is, how can we respond to a professing believer who says they don't have time to be in God's Word and in prayer? Yeah, I'm sure that's something that uh, you either wrestle with personally or come up in small groups. But uh, yeah, I think it's good to to draw out what that person means by, you know, I don't have time to be in God's Word and in prayer. Um, so oftentimes that's sort of biblical counseling, what they would say, sort of the presenting symptom, right? But we know that, um, you know, the heart is, is the, the control center of our hearts. That's where everything flows out of our actions, our speech, our, you know, our pursuits, our ambitions. And so, um, yeah, underneath that, the veil of not enough time, there's often a motivation and a desire, right, that you kind of want to draw out um, the person. And yeah, oftentimes it's an issue of priority. Right? You have time for these other things, but you don't have time for God's Word. Well, what does that mean? What are you prioritizing more in your life? What does that reveal about your relationship with God? Right? Oftentimes it's an issue of desire. Right? And, and the, the example I think of is like my kids. Like sometimes late at night they have to do some homework or whatever. Right? And they're like, oh, it's so late. I'm so tired. I just, whatever. Right? It's like, well, we've got to finish this. Let's just ask the Lord for strength to finish this. But if it's 9 o'clock at night and they're playing video games, they have no problems going till 10, 11, right? So clearly it's not an issue of no time or lack of strength. It's, it's, a, it's a desire and it's a priority. And so, um, but being able to draw that out, right, and not just hammer people and say, you know, why don't you read your book, you know? Um, but really helping people to see, yeah, it's, it's out of our desires and our, our, our relationship with Christ that we, we desire these things, right? And, um, pursue these things and prioritize these things in our lives. Thanks, Ted. Pastor Mark, anything? All right. Just a quick time check. We are at 9.30. Um, shall we answer a couple more? or You guys get five or ten more minutes. Seeing a lot of slight head nods, so all right, we'll continue. Uh, maybe we'll do a few more. Okay, so the next one is, uh, I, I think both of you guys can answer this one. So the question is, can you share what each of your personal times with the Lord look like? What are you reading or studying? How do you pray and decide what to pray for each day? All right. Um, yeah, right now I'm going through the Gospels. Um, you know, um, been going through the Old Testament in conjunction with my seminary Old Testament survey, and, and, and just the necessity to just really keep my eyes fixed on Christ. And all the all the Old Testament points to Christ, right? And so, um, yeah, just uh, going through you know Matthew with with the boys, um, but also in my personal time, and um, just enjoying that. In terms of prayer. Um, yeah, I, I sort of follow the model we sort of take with, with the intercessory prayer here at, at church too, which is, you know, each day I, I'll, you know, one day I'll, I'll pray for the salvation of unsaved family members or, um, you know, people at our church who have unsaved family members, um, uh, obviously my children too. Uh, another day we'll pray for the, we'll pray for the needs of the church. You know, those who are going through challenges and difficult times. You know, and, and so kind of rotating through um, and just covering whoever the Lord will also, you know, at times leaving it up to the Spirit to leave and then what to be praying for. Um, so generally that's how I've been doing things. Yeah, and I, I would say in a similar way, um, as far as prayer, one of the blessings of being really involved in the church is you have all this great opportunity and reminders to pray for people. And that's a joy. You know, it's really a joy. It's just such a blessing and privilege to be busy with the things of the Lord. It's a gift. It's something that we don't deserve. It's what Christ saved us for. And so that gives Julie and I an opportunity uh, to pray for you all. And we 
trying to pray on a regular basis for the leadership in their wives because we understand that that's where Satan attacks. Um, you know, every week, praise God, you know, when Lagos comes out um, and Kevin Lee sends me an email or whatever, it becomes a trigger for me to say, have I prayed for the men in our Lagos group this week? And that becomes a reminder. And as the emails come in for different aspects of church ministry or issues come up, that gives me an opportunity to pray for the different ministries of the church and the people who are involved. And of course, then there are the crisis issues that come up, and those are easy because they get your attention, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, there's what the Lord brings through our time in the Word. And so, um, you know, that's probably the one sanctuary for me in a life that can be a little bit crazy on multiple levels with a lot of things, is that time uh, is really a sanctuary to get an hour with the Lord. You know, and typically for me, I know for all of you it's different, but for me it's obviously early in the morning before anybody's woken up before the kids are up, before Julie's up, and that I get that opportunity. I, I like to go through um, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you can get a lot done in an hour. So I typically, you know, our boys are reading through First Samuel. So we started in Genesis, and we're now at First Samuel. So I try and read through what they're reading through. They read like a chapter a day in the morning. I've asked them to do that. And so I'll read what they're reading just so that I can be up to date with what they're doing. Um, I try and read one portion of the wisdom literature, so I, I usually read one or two psalms in the morning, and that's the first thing I read because that sets my heart to praise the Lord and, and sort of really tunes my heart with gratitude to the Lord. Um, and then I'll read either Proverbs. Right now I'm reading through Ecclesiastes. And then I'll go to the New Testament because I want to make sure that I don't miss focusing on Christ to see both and. And so I usually will go through uh, a chapter a day. And uh, right now I'm finishing up the Gospel of John. And then um, usually episodically in the afternoon, if I'm able to, I try and read through the epistles um, just to keep my mind focused on the practical applications um, for, for the church. And then you know, for fun, I enjoy reading Christian biographies, and that kind of changes it up because you have a lot of doctrine, and so um, the opportunity to read about the giants of the faith who have gone before us and struggled with the same things is always uh, a huge, a huge encouragement. Thanks for sharing, Lieutenant Pastor Mark. Uh, maybe we'll give about five minutes left, and we'll do one or two more questions. Um, the next one is for since we're Pastor Mark. The question is, can you provide any wisdom for unmarried adults in relating to their parents? How much authority and say should parents have for their unmarried adult children? How do they, quote-unquote, honor their father and mother? Yeah, this is going to come up over and over again. I know Ted's addressed it uh, any number of times. Um, look, I've... Uh, messed up in this area more times than I, uh, you know, would like to. I think I gave my parents a very hard time growing up. I was kind of, of the two sons, I was probably the more rebellious one who gave them a lot of headaches. I was the guy who kind of pushed the limits. Why, why, why? Why shouldn't I be out? And then, um, you know, with the transition for seminary was something that was not pleasing to my father, and I locked horns with him for three years. And I remember a really contentious weekend where the two of us were just going back and forth, and my mother pulling me aside and saying, Mark, I believe that you're called to go to seminary, but not like this and not this way. And she was so right, and really was like, you know, praise God for godly mothers, and godly women in our lives who speak the truth in love and can see our folly. And I remember her saying, you know, you're just going to have to, it's really hard for your father, after everything he sacrificed for you to put you through college and medical school and all of those different things and everything that he's been through, she said, this is just really hard for him. So you and I are going to have to pray and we're going to have to wait for the Lord. And I waited for three years and I prayed and I repented over that and really said, 
yeah, maybe this is right, but how I'm going around about this is is completely wrong. And so, um, you know, as we come into these things, at the end of the day, I know we keep on talking about the gospel, the gospel, but we really need to love our parents. And we really need to look to Christ. And when you look at Christ's example, he provides ample examples of dealing with parents. When his mother comes and asks him to turn water into wine, he gives her kind of a a gentle rebuke. He shows her, he says, you know, woman, you know, this is my time. You know, and he makes the point that she's kind of pressing him and she's kind of gone above her pay grade, okay, and pulling in what she's asking him to do. She's asking him to do something not as her son, but as the son of God. And so she's not where she should be. And so he's willing to point out to her, you're not right. I'm going to do this out of love and because of part of the father's plan but he is able to speak the truth in love. And I think as Asians, we feel that honoring our parents is the equivalent of obeying and not saying anything contrary to what they want. Okay, it's taboo. And if we do, everything's going to explode because we work in this shame-honor culture. We have to remember that when they're talking about honor, they're not talking about this Asian ancestor worship shame-honor. We are called to honor our parents. We are not necessarily, when we are believers, and they're asking us to do something that's contrary to God's word, we are not called to obey them. We're called to obey Christ. Now, there's a way we can go about doing that. We can do it with a terrible heart and a terrible attitude, which, sadly, I've done and have to repent of and say, I don't want to go back there again. Okay? We always have to honor Christ. What comes out of our mouth always has to edify and build up. But we also need to learn how to speak the truth and love to our parents because that becomes our witness. And we have to see that we have an opportunity to encourage, even if our parents are believers, and to point them to Christ and point them to the Lord. But we have to be mindful as we're told to honor them, as God has told us to honor them, we need to show God-given respect. When you grow up and you become independent and you are no longer dependent on your parents, they're no longer paying for your college fees, they're no longer paying for your room and board, you have become independent. Okay? The dynamic changes. When you are living under their headship, okay, when you're living in their home, they are your leader, they are your protector, they are the one whose home you're living in, to the extent you can, unless they're asking you to do something contrary to Scripture, you need to do everything you can to be at peace with them and come under their authority to respect their authority and honor that authority and be obedient to the extent that you can unless they're asking you to do something contrary to the Word of God. And typically that's the exception rather than the rule. But as you grow up and you become independent, okay, and you've moved out and you're at a different stage of life and God has called you and put you in a different stage of life where you're no longer 15 or 13 and you're coming under their authority, increasingly there's this transition that's happening where your primary authority is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He always has been, okay? But your family's transitioning where it becomes a little bit more of the church, And the transition in what's expected of you, you'll see there's bumps along the road as the Lord reestablishes your relationship with your parents where you're no longer functioning with them like a 15 or 16-year-old or a 21-year-old who's completely dependent on them. But instead, they become part of your ministry in which to love them. You still have to honor them because they're older, but this issue now of being obedient to their authority there starts to be a transition when you're no longer dependent. Thanks, Pastor Mark. We'll, we'll make this the last one. So, Ted, anything you wanted to add to that one? Or? Yes, good. Okay. All right. Yeah, it is 9.42, so I think we'll, we'll close it off there. Sorry for those that uh, we couldn't get to. Um, hopefully you can take this as motivation to submit the questions a little earlier next time. So, All right. Um, I'll just close this. Oh, actually, 
Let's um, I'll, I'll actually go through a few of the announcements, um, and then I'll close our time in prayer. So, um, for the announcements, we do have our our Lagos um, Christmas Fellowship Dinner or Christmas Dinner Fellowship, and the sign up has been sent out uh, the Google form. So, in case you have not uh, signed up but you're interested, please do sign up by noon tomorrow. Uh, we are we have essentially made the groups and those groups will be posted. So yeah, if you're still interested and haven't signed up, please do so. Again, this is uh, just a dinner uh, for uh, at a few of the homes that we'll be hosting uh, for next week. And um, yeah, this is our last gathering for the semester until uh, we reconvene again uh, in January sometime. And um, Another announcement that I have is that there is a new food waste policy in the city of Sunnyvale. For those, so for those of you who are here and um, enjoying refreshments afterwards, uh, please remember to dispose of your food scraps in the clear trash bags during the refreshments time. So um, yeah, please remember that. All right, I'll just close us in a quick word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just your guidance today, Lord, as you reminded us in uh, James chapter 1, Lord, we, uh, if any of us lacks wisdom, uh, let us ask you uh, who gives generously without reproach. And Lord, we're thankful for the elders and uh, the wisdom that they've drawn from your word and was able to share with us um, for the different questions that we had, whether it was dealing with um, evaluating political candidates um, dealing with our parents, our spouses, children. Um, Lord, we know that your word has all the answers and uh, is sufficient for all of living. And so I pray that uh, just for in light of the things that were shared today by the elders, uh, would you help us to uh, just consider them heavily uh, if they were questions that were pertinent to us. And uh, Lord, that we would uh, be molded more into your likeness. So we thank you again. We thank you for uh, the study that we had in Ephesians 2 uh, for the past couple of weeks. Lord, just being reminded of uh, your plan for salvation and revealing to us who we were, who we once were, and uh, how you've made us alive in Christ and uh, what you call us to and the good works that you prepare for us beforehand. So we thank you again. I pray that you would just bless the rest of this time and this fellowship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.